0: Coming to you live from Yo-Yo's house of squeaky toys and messed up beds, it's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode 70. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, on this episode, we've got a monster movie review, connected characters, and the GM's toolkit. And now, let's get started. Hello there, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I thank you for coming here. And as I am recording this, we are exactly one week away from the start of DundraCon, which means we're about six and a half days away from my friend Arna and I arriving at the hotel the day before the con. I have not yet started my con-related running around, grabbing stuff, stuffing it into carrying cases and bags and whatnot, so as to get everything ready for the con, but that'll happen in a few hours once I'm done recording this. I uh, have a very full con, as I've mentioned on other episodes. I have the three games I'm running... One game I'm certain to be playing in, at least for a few hours. A uh, seminar, possibly a second seminar, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to get in some board gaming. I've got to do the auction. Um, I've got to do the flea market on Monday. Sell a bunch of games, hopefully, and make back a little bit of what I'm spending. And it's just looking to be a very full con, and I'm very pumped up for it after two years of not going to cons. And I want to see all the people I haven't seen in two years. and Maybe I'll be able to give somebody a hug. Maybe not. Depends on how they feel about social distancing and whatnot. So anyway, that's what's going on here as far as me. Uh, Grace is at work today. Yo-Yo is finally asleep. Yeah, Terriers, full of energy. We took a walk. We played Chase the Squeaky Toy. We ate some treats. Well, he ate some treats. I didn't eat any treats. But, uh, yeah, he's a wonderful little dog, but damn, he's full of energy. He's the dog I should have had when I was 28 instead of 68. But we're kind of stuck with each other now, so that's cool. Now, before I get on to thanking my wonderful patrons, I want to point out that the last episode was a little shorter than the 30 minutes I've been shooting for. And this episode could well run considerably longer than 30 minutes because I am not only talking about Dundercon, like I did at the beginning here, but I am reviewing one of my favorite Japanese horror slash monster movies, which is all but lost now. It's hard to find anywhere. And so I may talk a little extra about that and I may get uh, pretty wound up about the GM's toolkit too. So if this runs 40, 45 minutes, well, there you go. You know in advance, you can stop, go to the bathroom, go eat a snack, whatever. And now I will, in fact, get on to thanking my wonderful, wonderful, generous patrons over on Patreon, who you can become one of if you you go over and check it out. So thank you, David. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. And thank you, Marion. You guys are wonderful, and I hope you enjoy the show. So our monster movie review, which I mentioned, is Attack of the Mushroom People, if you watch it in the United States, or Matango, if you watch it in Japan or a lot of other places. Now, Matango is a 1963 Japanese horror film directed by Ishiro Honda, the guy behind all the Godzilla movies and several other movies. The film stars Akira Kubo, Kumi Mizuno, and Kenji Sahara, and it is partially based on a William Hope Hodgson story, short story, The Voice in the Night, and is about a group of castaways on an island who are unwittingly altered by a local species of mutagenic mushrooms. So right there, you got a weird-ass premise, but yeah, it works. Now, Matango was different from Honda's other films of the period, as it explored darker themes and featured a more desolate look. When the film was released, it almost got banned in Japan, because some of the makeup effects resembled the victims of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, The film was directly released to television in the United States in a shortened form, which is how I saw it. And retrospective reviews generally commented on how the film varied from Honda's other work with its darker tone. And it does. So now let's get on to the whole plot of the thing. And it's all told in flashback. In a hospital in Tokyo, a university professor named Kenji Morai is visited by a man who asks him about the events that led to him in the hospital. The story is about a group of crew and passengers on a day trip on a yacht, including Morai, his shipmate assistant, Senzo Koyama, writer, Etsuro Yoshida, celebrity, Masafumi Kasai, the owner of the yacht, professional singer, Mami Sekiguchi, and student Akiko Soma. The storm causes the yacht to nearly capsize, and although the boat remains upright, it sustains severe damage during the storm and drifts uncontrollably. After a few days, the group arrives at a seemingly deserted island and begins to explore. They come across ponds full of fresh rainwater, so they have something to drink, and a large forest of mushrooms, The yacht skipper, Naoyuki, warns them not to eat the mushrooms because they might be poisonous. As they cross the island, they come upon a wrecked yacht on the shore whose sails are rotted and the interior is covered with a mysterious mold. Finding that the mold is killed by cleaning products, they work to clean it from the ship. Why, I'm not sure, but maybe because that ship is less damaged. In doing so, they begin to suspect that the ship was connected to nuclear tests conducted in the vicinity of the island, with the resultant fallout forcing a bizarre mutation on various organisms native to the natural surrounding area, including the mushrooms. As the days pass and their food supplies begin to dwindle, the group grows restless and argues, and Kasai refuses to help find a way off the island and steals from their food stores instead. After becoming concerned about their provisions, Yoshida decides to try eating mushrooms. Now, I'm not going to go any further with the plot from there because it gets bizarre and it gets really creepy and dark and scary. I distinctly remember the first time I saw this movie because this was the first horror movie that legendary horror film host Bob Wilkins showed on his television show. This was before he had creature features. This was when it had a whole other name. I believe it was three-star theater, something like that. Anyway, came on at like 1130 at night. I was home all alone. All of my friends, male friends especially, were watching this because we all watched the late-night movies um, on Saturday night, especially since we knew a new horror movie based series was coming on and Bob Wilkins did it for years and years and years and years I was by the way in the I think 8th grade when this started and I watched this movie and it creeped me the fuck out Uh, just totally creeped me out and I only saw it once after that and that was about oh I would say 10 years later when I was maybe 24, 25, and it was once again on Bob Wilkins' Creature Features this time, coming out of San Francisco, not Sacramento. And I watched it again, and it still creeped me out, and I knew what was coming. Now, while this was a big departure for Ishiro Honda from the kaiju movies he did, it was not uncommon for him to direct horror films He did two that I know of, The H-Man in 1958 and The Human Vapor in 1960 where characters become transformed into weird things uh, in one, a vapor in the other, water Um, and his last film in this style was in fact Matango and it's sort of an odd duck it doesn't belong to, you know traditional type of horror movies and it doesn't belong to kaiju movies but has some kind of elements of both the mutated stuff is kaiju straight up now it was very very dark compared to all these other movies i mean you watch that and then you watch king kong versus godzilla and it's like night and day the story for the movie is actually pretty close to the Hodgson short story, The Voice in the Night, although Honda added different characters and he sort of skewed it a little more towards, you know, the Japanese way of doing things. So, you know, that's understandable. He was also inspired by a news story about a group of rich kids who took their father's yacht far out to sea and had to be rescued. And early drafts of the film actually featured Characters paralleling their real-life counterparts, but then he changed that around. Now, according to um, sources, Honda took the project very seriously, telling actors before production that the film was a serious drama picture, so please keep this in mind and work accordingly. It's also explained that he had a different ending to the film, which I won't go into, but I'll just say the guy looked normal at the end of the film. Uh, It was his first film to use the Oxbury Optical Printer, which Toho Studios purchased from the United States to allow for better image compositing. And it allowed the ability to superimpose up to five composite shots, allowing the crew to avoid costly hand-painted mats, and glass shots and shit like that. Toho Studios released the film in Japan on August 11, 1963, which coincidentally was my wife's fifth birthday, and Honda described it later as a film that was not a typical Japanese mainstream movie at all, and he said when the critics saw it, they didn't like it, so that was pretty much the end of the film. Matango was Honda's first science fiction film not to receive a theatrical release in the United States. There, American International Television released it directly to television in 1965 as Attack of the Mushroom People. Like I said, that's the title I saw it under. This version of the film had a runtime of 88 minutes. They produced an English dubbed version of the film, but according to Wikipedia, it is uncertain when it was officially released. Well, I can tell you, it was released before the fall of 1967, because that's when I saw it on television, and it was dubbed. Now, prior to Matango's release on home video, the film was shown frequently on American television during the 60s and 70s, like I said. But as of about 1994, it had all but disappeared. Now, maybe it's popped up on the internet. I'm not sure if you can see it on uh, uh, YouTube or any of that. I should have looked that up, but I didn't. But uh, it's considered a very obscure film now, and I really think people would like it if they could see it again. So that's Matango, Attack of the Mushroom People. It is truly still one of my favorite Japanese horror films, one of my favorite monster films of all time. I strongly urge you to see it if you can find it somewhere. And having just taken a moment to check the internet, I find that it is not available on YouTube. Um, There's lots of reviews of it and parodies and stuff like that, but the actual movie is not on YouTube, but apparently you can watch it on Amazon Prime. You may be able to watch it if you have Netflix DVDs, but I sincerely doubt you can just watch it streaming on Netflix. Anyway, that is my review of Matango, Attack of the Mushroom People. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be back with another review. Okay, folks, now we move on to connected characters. And this is where we have two characters who are connected to the last two characters and connected to each other, of course. So this time, we have Quick Sally, a thief, and Duncan, who is her cart dog. Or is he a 100% dog? Well. We'll find out. And our connection with the previous two characters, Tenard Gale and Susha, the forest folk learner, is in fact Duncan the cart dog. You see, when Susha first left the forest and came out to learn about other races and species and things like that, the greater wide world, one of the very first creatures that Susha met was Duncan, who was being trained to be a cart dog. He was about six months old, not yet is full size, which is considerably larger than St. Bernard at this point. And as Susha was wont to do, because he did not speak any languages other than his own, he sort of did a forest folk mind meld with Duncan. And they sort of shared minds for a bit. And then Susha could understand dog. And Susha could speak to Duncan. And Duncan could understand Susha, and Duncan found that he could understand a lot of other languages. Now, as you can imagine, this changed Duncan's whole worldview, and he was ready to go and explore and learn some more stuff the same way Susha was. And in fact, he escaped from the farm with Susha, and they traveled together for a bit, a few months. And finally, Susha went off into a big city, and Duncan really doesn't like big cities, so he parted company and within a few days he met quick sally now nobody knows what sally's last name is she never reveals it but sally's a thief she's a pickpocket she's a cut purse she does a little bit of uh, shoplifting things like that she's very good at it and when she meets this dog this humongous dog because sally's a human and she's only about four foot six inches tall and she's very petite and she meets this great big dog she thinks hey cool i'll you know make a pet of him and he can you know be my mount and she can in fact ride him he's big enough for that no problem well she's going along with him the first day they met and he starts talking to her now suddenly this Opens up whole new vistas of thievery as far as Sally's concerned. And Duncan, being a dog, really doesn't have much uh, sense of what's yours and what's mine. So they worked out pretty well together. Now they travel around and go from towns and villages, you know, all over the various kingdoms. And they steal a little here and they steal a little there. Actually, Sally does most of the stealing, although. Duncan has been known to grab bags of food and sneak them off and you know occasionally run down a you know rabbit or something. He's pretty fast for a big dog. At any rate, they have a good partnership worked out, and they've been together for years. In the present time, Sally is about twenty nine and Duncan is about ten. And they are thinking about maybe finding a village or town to maybe settle down in for a while while they rethink this whole thieving thing because, like Sally says, she isn't getting any younger, Duncan isn't getting any younger, and the road can be a pretty rough place. So if you have characters and they encounter these two, Sally might be looking to make that last big score that a lot of thieves look for so that she can retire and live out life in comfort. Or she might have something she can sell these guys which would bring her in some money. Or she might have information on how they can go get a lot of money if they give her a cut. A lot of different ways that you could put Sally and Duncan in. Of course, Duncan, who can talk to all sorts of creatures now, he may have all sorts of information that he can relay through Sally. All of which I'm sure Sally would sell for a fair price. And that's Quick Sally and Duncan, our two connected characters. Have fun. Use them as you will. And in two weeks, we'll have some more. Now we move on to the GM's toolkit. And this time, I want to talk about how the GM can supply coins, jewels, and other loot including the sacks to carry them in, to your players. One of the things I found a long time ago is that people lose track of how much money they have. You know, your guy starts out with 100 gold pieces, and he buys some armor, he buys a weapon, he's got, you know, 15 silvers and 20 coppers and maybe two gold pieces left. And then you go out and you do things, you tell him, well, this inn costs, you know, two coppers a night or something and they lose track of it, and the GM sure as hell loses track of it. Now, in the current game I'm playing in, the current d d game, one of our players keeps track of all the money, and it works out pretty well, but still not 100%. To make it 100%, you give them actual fake coins. Now, you can use whatever you want. You can actually go to a a hobby shop or a toy store or whatever where they sell stuff like that or a craft store. And you can buy fake coins. Usually you can get them in copper color, silver color, and gold color. I have a bunch of them. Some of them came with games. Some of them came with other things. You can use poker chips. That's another big thing I use. And you just grab your can of spray paint. Boom, boom, boom. You've got whatever colors you need for your coins. Then I strongly suggest to keep your players from having umpteen million of these coins in their bags, which, by the way, you can also buy at hobby shops. You can find things at thrift stores. I gave one group of characters uh, an old pillowcase that I bought at a thrift store for like 25 cents. What you need to do, though, is take these coins and mark them in denominations. Okay, here's a gold coin that's worth one gold. Here's a gold coin worth 5, 10, 15, 100, whatever you need for them to have. And then you need to have a box of coins that you can make change. And this way you will come very, very, very close to keeping track of everything. Because every time there's a transaction, you actually exchange coins. As far as jewels go, you can sometimes find them in the toy section of thrift stores or maybe in the area in the thrift store where they have craft stuff. But really, you're probably better off just going to a craft store and shelling out some money for a couple bags of whatever you want. You can get them in all the popular colors, green, red, blue, clear, whatever, to be diamonds, rubies, emeralds, whatever. And then I will take a permanent marker, and somewhere on that coin, I will mark what it's worth. And I'll say this one's worth 10 gold, this one's worth 50 gold, this one's worth 300 gold, this one's worth 1,000 gold, whatever. Then you hand them out to your players, and when they come into town to cash them in, you give them the money for them. But remember, if that diamond is worth $1,000 straight up, there's nobody going to give them $1,000 for it. They're going to give them more like 500 or. Maybe 600 maybe maybe $700. they are not going to give them anywhere near the full amount. And if they're dealing with a fence, because these jewels were stolen from somebody, the fence is going to give them a whole lot less. Now, if the fence knows them, they might give them 20%. If the fence doesn't know them, they should be thankful if they get 10%. Please don't ask me how I know this. Um, other loot you can have, um, I generally just go with small plastic versions of whatever I can find. Uh, you can go into a grocery store and if you look for cocktail toothpicks, you'll very often find some look like little swords and they come in different colors. So I will actually use those. This is a magic sword and I'll write down, okay, if it's yellow, it's a plus one. If it's green, it's a plus three. If it's red, it's a sword that bursts into flames, whatever. Sometimes I'll put little marks on them and say, okay, the yellow one with the two marks is only plus one, but it's intelligent. So then I have that all written down. You can do the same thing with almost anything. Another thing you can find in craft stores are chests, little wooden chests that people paint up and decorate and do stuff with. You can use those for an actual chest they find. I would get one that measures, you know, six inches by four inches or something like that. Maybe four or five inches tall, whatever. Or you can just use a cardboard box. Uh, goodness knows, in this age of Amazon, all of us have boxes. Go ahead and use them. I've also got big boxes that uh, dog biscuits come in, I use those. So I say, oh, yep, yep, you found a chest. Now, sometimes that chest isn't really a chest. We all love the Mimic. But when it is a chest, I put things inside. And they look and say, oh, look, here's gold, here's jewels, here's this, here's that, you know. You can make scrolls. Just, you know, find a nice font, print out what you want the scroll to say. If you don't want it to say anything specific, so that they have to take it somewhere and have it translated, then you just put, you know, there's rune things you can, uh, rune fonts you can download. There's, hell, you could, Write a scroll in Vulcan or Klingon. Unless, of course, one of your players can speak Vulcan or Klingon or read it. In which case, you'd have to find something else. Chinese, maybe. I don't know. And there you go. You've got you've got your scrolls, uh, magic rings. You can go into these craft stores and places. You can find magic rings. You can make magic rings out of uh, tinfoil. Just roll up some tinfoil, wrap it around your finger. Twist it off so it looks more or less like a ring. Toss it in a bag. Um, I have also used washers from uh, Home Depot and stuff. You buy a package of washers, use those for coins. Those are sometimes even better because they're smaller. I mean, poker chips are nice because they're light, especially if you buy just the cheap plastic ones. But washers kind of have that jingle, that feel of being coins. It's kind of cool. You know, you can use anything to represent a coin. You can use bottle caps. So when creating loot and stuff for your party to find, for you to give out to them during a game, just remember that the thrift store, the craft store, the party supply store, the toy store, and even the hardware store can be your friends. And let your imagination just run wild. You know, you'll... See something, you say, you know, that looks like a a little miniature axe. Buy some. Or you'll say, oh, look, that looks like a a little miniature this or that. Or that looks like a miniature version of a suit of armor. Buy it. In fact, you can put, uh, if you have little plastic dudes that are like knights, just toss them in and say, oh, look, you found a suit of armor. Or look, you found, you know, a, a tiny little golem or something who will be your servant. You know, Just go wild with it. Have fun. And that is the GM's Toolkit for this time. Next time, we'll cover something else. All right, folks. Normally, I would end the show now, but I want to talk about Dundercon some more. Mostly, I want to give out my schedule just in case anybody's curious or if you're going to be there. So I arrive on Thursday afternoon, roughly around 3.30, 4 o'clock, and that night I'm thinking I'm probably going to run a Baron Munchausen game. This is completely unofficial. The con hasn't started yet, so I'll, you know, maybe get some people together. I've talked about it on the Dundercon group on Facebook, and I think, you know, we'll just sit around and tell each other lies and maybe have a drink or whatever, although there might be some kids there, so we'll tone down any sexual innuendos and maybe not have any alcohol there. Then on Friday, I am running my usual tune game from 8 o'clock till midnight. On Saturday, from 11 a.m. until noon, I'm doing my jamming by the seat of your pants seminar. I may be involved in the city building seminar that starts immediately thereafter. Not sure. Haven't really been invited yet. Saturday night from eight o'clock till midnight, I am running Welcome to the Random Verse, where I pull an entire game system, rules, characters, everything, genre, everything, out of my ass. We'll see how that works. Sunday, I am going to be running from eight o'clock until midnight my D&D game. Put that back, where people have to put back items they just stole. But not in the place they stole it from, but in a place it was found to begin with. That should be interesting too. Also, I believe on Saturday I will be playing in Sean Patrick Fannin's multi-genre superhero whatever game for, I mean, it's a big long game and people can drop in and out, so I'll probably be there at least a couple of hours. I will also, throughout the con, be occasionally playing board games and card games i will be in and out of the dealer's room i will be in and out of the auction which i think is on saturday so the con is going to be busy for me and oh yeah then on monday i will be setting up in the flea market to sell two or three milk crates full of games that i have and we'll see how that goes And then I imagine I'll be leaving the con somewhere around noon, one o'clock on Monday. So, like I said, if you're going to be at the con, do look me up. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you can't find me in person, you can ask somebody, hey, have you seen Doc? And probably they'll say, oh, yeah, he's there. He's there. I do have a history of posting short videos from the con on Facebook. So that's going to continue. I'm also going to try and actually interview some people or just chat with attendees that I will record and put on here um, on the next episode that I get a chance to do that on. And maybe I'll even record a few interviews on video and post them both on Patreon and in other forms on Facebook. So there it is. That's me. That's Dundercon. That's what's going to be happening. I will post things on Patreon for my patrons to read. I will post other stuff on Facebook for you, the general populace, to read. And I hope I have a lot of fun. I hope everybody listening to this gets a chance to go to, if not DunderCon, some con, because we all really need to hang out with our tribe. All right, folks, this is, in fact, the end of today's program. I want to thank you all for listening swell if you have any suggestions comments or questions i can be reached on facebook where i'm doc cross on wordpress at the docverse blog via email at agent at gmail.com if you're listening via anchor you can leave a voicemail and if you are one of my patrons you can just go right on to the patreon page and leave a message there and i will see it very quickly because they'll send me an email If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts weeks before they go up on Anchor. And, by the way, starting in the end of February, I'll be doing another Docopedia Death March. And patrons will get to read that a full month before anybody else can read it on my blog. So, that's cool. Anyway, you can just go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross and... Sign up right there. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned, and I will tie myself in a knot working out a deal with you. Our music was Blueberry Piano Blues, which came off of Google Music, and I don't know who does it because they didn't tell me. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. Live long and prosper, and I will see you next time.